0: Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart.
1: Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. So, Joe, you and Adam sat down last week with the author of The Art of the Deal, Not Donald Trump, the real author, Tony Schwartz. Joe, a lot of journalists have studied and written about Donald Trump, but Tony has probably spent more time with him than anyone else outside the Trump family.
0: I'm sorry you missed it, but it was a fascinating 45 minutes with Tony. We got a real sense of how Donald Trump works or doesn't work, as the case may be. And I'm not going to give you the I'll give you the questions. You have to listen for the answer. But uh, we quoted uh, James Comey to him about losing a little bit of your soul, and I asked him if he'd lost his soul to Donald Trump, and uh, the answer is well worth listening to. Oh, good question. You know, right at the end, I I asked him if whatever legal authority or political authority had the goods on Donald Trump, what would it take to get Donald Trump to resign the office of uh, the presidency? Uh, And his answer was fascinating there.
1: Let's listen to the full interview.
2: He's the author of The Art of the Deal, not Donald Trump, the real author, Tony Schwartz. And it's a book he now says should be reclassified as a work of fiction. Many have interviewed, studied, researched, and profiled Donald Trump, as our next guest did as a journalist in 1985. But few outside his family have spent more time with him and saw the fraud firsthand. Tony Schwartz, welcome to Words Matter.
0: Thank you. Tony, you have a unique perspective on our current president, and we as a country, I think, have a more unique perspective on the time where you were joined at the hip with him, now with the New York Times story about him being the biggest loser in business and history. But let's start with how it all came about. How did you become you know, part of the Donald Trump myth machine? Well,
3: I was a journalist in New York at, in that era of the... 70s and then the 80s. I was a New York Times reporter. I had worked for the New York Post. I was a writer at Newsweek, and then I landed at New York Magazine as a staff writer. And you know, I was always looking for sexy stories. You know, we all competed to be on the cover. And I, I I was aware of Trump. You couldn't not be aware of Trump because of Trump Tower above all, which had gone up in the in that period of time, and he'd gotten attention. And I heard about the fact that he was, he had bought this building on 100 Central Park South, this very elegant location. It was a rent control, rent stabilized building. So the tenants in the building were paying very low rents to live in a very attractive, appealing place. And Trump's plan, as many of real estate developers did, was to get rid of the tenants. And he hired this notorious company called Urban Relocation and in the funny way that the world works, I actually – the very first professional piece of journalism I ever published was in my sophomore year of college. I was a intern at the Village Voice and I was given the opportunity to do a piece, the piece by the city editor, this legendary woman named Mary Parrott Nichols. And it was about a real estate developer, a guy named Sheldon Sallow, who owned a lot of New York real estate, who was trying to convert – actually some brownstones, trying to rip them down so he could build a luxury building. And I wrote this piece called, and it's funny, the name of it just came back into my head, even though it was like 35, 40 years ago, speaking up for the harassed tenant. And it was the same story. He hired Urban Relocation, and they were doing all these horrific things to get rid of the tenants. They were breaking the lights. They were refusing to make repairs. They were doing anything they could creeping right up to the edge of the law and probably sometimes going beyond it to get rid of tenants. And, and in, this is what Trump started to do. And I went to write that piece and I did write it. It was called the cold war on central park South. And it was the cover of the magazine. And it was a picture of Trump was an illustration of Trump looking kind of like a thug. And I assumed that having written that piece, not only would he never talk to me again, but he'd be enraged and, you know, look fine. You know, the story was accurate. He loved it. He loved the story, which is, you know, so Trumpian. Although today being criticized doesn't land on him the way it did then. At the time it was just more attention and he still was enormously hungry. Not that he's not hungry for attention today, but he didn't have as much as he wanted
0: then. And and I would guess in his ethos and in his circles, being able to kick, you know, lower middle class people or middle class people out of their apartments to for him to get richer would be seen as a positive attribute. I think uh, it was probably
3: irrelevant to his friends, and he probably never even talked much about it. What he would talk about, which is typical Trump, is he'd choose the piece, the little thing he could alight on, that would make it sound justified. And in this case, it was that the people living in the big apartments facing the park were actually, in some cases, very wealthy. And they were paying $1,000 a month for, you know, an eight-room apartment that was probably worth five times that at the time. And the idea of getting rid of those people appealed to him enormously. I remember Trump saying to me about Steve Wynn, you know, he wears these $1,000 suits and he, you know, he was born on third base. He was part of the Lucky Sperm Club. And he could say that with a straight face, as if he was the poor guy from the ghetto who'd made it. But, you know, here was a guy saying that about someone and by that point had already inherited $400 million from his father. Trump was always shameless. That first story you did,
2: you said that he looked like a thug, but the text of it was very, very tough. I mean, you said things like the gang that couldn't shoot straight. Do you think he read it?
3: Oh, my God, he definitely read it. At the time, Trump would wake up in the morning with every New York newspaper, and there were more of them then, and, you know, every magazine that anybody looked at, and he would read them. He'd be reading in a very selective way and distracted way, but he he for sure would read anything about himself. So, yeah, he read it. What he liked was being portrayed as a thug. He wanted to be seen as a tough guy, as bullies do. You know, Trump is very weak inside. He's deeply, deeply, deeply insecure. Now you never see it in explicit terms. You see it in the exaggerated way he seeks praise. So I think at the time he was very happy, not only about the picture, which made him look tough, but about the fact that he seemed inside like what we would call
0: a criminal, but he would call a tough guy. So how did it work? He wanted to write a book. How did you guys work together? I approached him again
3: because he was, he was a, you know a character. He was a it reminds me a little bit of the way you thought about Ed Koch, like he, he just somebody you paid attention to because he was always doing something outrageous. Now Trump took that to a whole different level, but I went back to do the Playboy interview with him, and the Playboy interview was like a cool thing at the time. I don't know that anybody read it, but as a as an interviewer, it was fun to do because you got to you know, go on and on and on in the interview. And so I went to do the Playboy interview with him and, you know, we got 10 minutes into the interview and what he was providing to me was just drivel. And I said, Donald, you know, this is different than the last piece I wrote. I could fill in all the dots, but in this case, it's just going to be your words. What's the problem? He said, oh, well, you know what? I don't want to say too much. Why? Because, you know, I'm going to do a book, and. Then ensued a conversation, what's the book? And he said, well, Random House has come to me and it's going to be my autobiography, I guess. And I said, well, you don't really have an autobiography. You're 37 years old. What's your autobiography? And he said, yeah, I know, but I'm getting paid a lot of money. I'm going to do it. And I said, well, if I were you and you're going to write a book, given who you are, I'd write a book called The Art of the Deal. And the words just came out of my mouth. I'm a writer. I've written a bunch of books and it's the best title I ever came up with. At an early age, he said, wow, yeah, like, uh, would you like to write it? And there was the Rubicon, Joe. I mean, there was the moment of truth that I can say, honestly, that most of my journalist friends would have laughed and said, no, of course, not. I don't want, they don't want to write it. Or they would have been polite, potentially, but they would have never considered doing the book. But obviously, I did. I didn't say yes in that moment. I said I'd think about it. And I spent – I don't know if I spent a week or two weeks, some amount of time talking to all my friends about it and trying to get a sense of is this something I could get away with? Can I hold on to my reputation and also do this? And I ultimately decided I, I would do the book and I did the book. I mean there's no question. It's no no complexity in it. I did the book for, for the money. It was – It was a quarter of a million dollar advance. He agreed to give me half the advance that he – of his $500,000 and that was five times what I'd ever earned in a year as a journalist and I thought it could change my life. And he also agreed to give me 50 percent of the royalties. So I knew that if the book succeeded, I had the potential to make a lot more money. I'd never been motivated particularly by making money but boy, this was a – this seemed like an extraordinary opportunity.
0: So you make the deal. You start hanging out with Trump. Talk about what it's like to be embedded in the world of Trump at the moment and, again, in the in the myth-making part of his life where he's on top of the world.
3: Yeah. I mean, he's on the – what is it? The 37th floor of Trump Tower. You look out at one of the great views of New York, which was panoramic. Trump at that time actually worked, meaning he spent all day on the phone. He did actually engage in making deals in between talking to reporters. So there was an active life. My role at the beginning was built around coming to see him on the weekends to do what I thought would be two or three hour interviews. And I thought, you know, I'd probably do 20 or 30 or 40 of them. And that would be the gist of the book. But in the very first interview, I got five minutes into it. And what happens? The same exact thing that happened in the Playboy interview. What he's saying is so thin and superficial and limited. And the look on his face is so irritated that it's clear to me that, as I have gone on to say publicly many times, he had no attention span. He was absolutely incapable of focusing on one thing at a time in an absorbed way For any significant period of time. So it was very quickly clear to me that this was going to be very difficult to write a book about him or a book in his voice because he didn't have much to say.
0: It sounds like you just became a companion and watched him work in the office and he wanted to show you what a big deal maker he was.
3: Yeah. I mean, Trump loves an audience and I was a constant audience so, yeah, he was perfectly happy to have me around. The way it turned – the way it happened that I started hanging out in his office as opposed to going to his apartment was that after a certain period of time, I realized I just couldn't interview him. And I, my last resort was to say to him, why don't I come and spend a weekend with you when you're at Mar-a-Lago and you're not on the phone and we'll do a bunch of interviews and I'll get way down the road on this. And he said, okay, fine. So I came down to Mar-a-Lago and we sat down, you know, as we had before. And then, no surprise, the same exact thing happened. He didn't want to talk. He got frustrated. So I had the idea on the plane home, even though I called my agent from Mar-a-Lago and said, look, I'm going to have to give up this book. It's just not going to happen. But I had this idea on the plane. Maybe I can just sit there and listen to him on the phone. And then fill in the gaps by talking to the people later who he's talking on the phone to and be able to put together the deals. And indeed, that's the way the book actually happened. Now, the incredible irony, given the New York Times story, of the fact that I was watching him make deals. And listen, it had a certain pizzazz and glamour. He was talking to famous people. He was in the middle of multiple deals. It looked to me... I mean, this is embarrassing, but it looked to me like this guy was a big deal maker. Meanwhile, we now know that as I was sitting there, his entire business was collapsing. So I wrote, for example, in The Art of the Deal, I wrote about three different casinos that he built or owned during the period leading up to and actually in the middle of my writing the book. All three of those casinos were either going bankrupt or would go bankrupt. I wrote about the United States Football League, the New York team in the United States Football League, and Trump helped to blow up that league and put it into bankruptcy. We now know the Times piece reveals that he was losing tens, maybe even hundreds of millions of dollars ultimately, but certainly tens of millions of dollars a year during that very period. So What's remarkable about Trump is that you would have no idea. I never for one moment thought that he was failing at remotely the level he was failing. I thought he was full of shit. I thought that he was probably doing lots of different things that were illegal. But what I never thought was, and it's not working
0: (laughs) Yeah, and, and, and he, was, he was in front of your eyes going broke. The guy is not conventionally a smart, intelligent guy. He's not successful at business, we've found out. He's not particularly a man of good character. Is his genius fooling people, fooling people I like you? He's a you? promoter. In
3: the days before it had such malevolent impact on the planet and the country, you could say he was sort of just a P.T. Barnum. And I thought all the way through, well, yeah, this guy's a hustler and he's going to take advantage of people wherever he can. But I would say that his, you know, the one quality that I could not argue that he had that could be considered a virtue by some is relentlessness. Trump's style was to keep coming at you and at you and at you. And he wore you down. And you can see this in spades in his presidency. No collusion, no conspiracy. How many times has he said that? How many times does he repeat the nicknames that he comes up with for the Democratic candidates? How many times does he say, build the wall? Schooled by Roy Cohn, and maybe to some extent by his father's business style, he really understood that If you don't care about what people think of you and you don't have a conscience, so you're not riddled with guilt when you do hideous things to other people, you can indeed wear them down even if what you're doing is illegal and unconscionable.
0: But he didn't seem to do it in a way that made him an incredibly wealthy man.
3: Well, he is incredibly wealthy because (laughs) – you You're incredibly wealthy. You're in the top one tenth of one percent if you have a couple million dollars or a million dollars and whether it's it's ill begotten or not, Trump has a significant amount of money I think the the reality is that he built a lot of his reputation on the idea that he was a billionaire, and I suspect he's never been a billionaire, and that he has been losing money in his business year in
0: and year out for decades. Before we move to current time and what you think about Trump as president, Jim Comey famously said a few weeks ago that Trump eats at your soul piece by piece until he's, he takes you. And it, if you don't have a strong character, he's going to take advantage of you. Did he take your soul here?
3: Gee, I haven't been asked that question before and it's it's an interesting one. The answer is no. The answer is unequivocally no. Trump led me to the Dharma. I mean, Trump literally transformed my life in the opposite way he would have wanted to or expected to because I found it, he was a representation of the worst of everything that had attracted me. Celebrity, visible success, money, glamour, and He set me off on a journey in 1988, 89, more than 30 years ago, in search of what a meaningful life could look like. The next book I wrote after Trump was What Really Matters, Searching for Wisdom in America. I launched almost 20 years ago an organization that I now run called The Energy Project, which is designed to help big companies create more humane workplaces. I have spent my life trying to live as far from the values that Trump represents as I possibly could. For 30 years after writing that book, or 28 years, I never spoke about Trump publicly. I turned down every interview I was ever asked to do. When he asked me to write his second book, you know, some months after the publication of the first, and offered me $850,000 up front, I should say only a third of the royalties as opposed to 50% of the royalties but that's trump i said no so i think trump prompted me to to seek and live a life of much greater meaning than i might have lived if i hadn't done the book which is one of the really troubling things for me because then the logical question is well if you had to do it over again would you and of course sitting here in 2019 and knowing what trump has done the answer is no Even in saying no, I would realize that it would have meant I almost surely would not have lived the life for the last 30 years that I have, and I'm very proud of that life, and it is the person I am, and I'm happy to be. I wish that he'd simply (laughs)
0: lost. Well, I think there's a lot of people who agree with you on that. Let's turn to Trump as president. Adam and I were talking before, and I think it's remarkable that for this long, this president has not faced a true crisis, has not faced a crisis. All of his crises are ones of his own making, whether it be the Russia stuff at the border, the the stuff going on with Iran now. He's creating this for his own purposes. He's not had a world financial crisis. He's not had a real dispute in the South China Sea. You know Trump, and I think you've predicted pretty dire consequences if he ever faces one. How is he going to handle it when when? He's got to focus on and be a leader.
3: I find it as terrifying as I did when I first said to Jane Mayer in the months before he was elected that if it came down to a confrontation between him and one of the dictators around the world, a Putin or a Kim Jong-un, and you, know, you had Trump in the situation room and the decision about whether to push the button, the nuclear button – I could tell you that if Trump thought he was going to survive that holocaust the fact that billions of other people or millions or hundreds of millions of other people would die in the process I wouldn't have great hope that he would be constrained by that he has very poor ability to control his impulses he doesn't think reflectively he lacks compassion for and empathy and care so you know, he's going to be about some blend of self-preservation and reactivity in the face of any big crisis. This is not what we'd
0: want. He's not one of the astronauts with the right stuff. That description is not of a sociopath. That description is a psychopath. Does, Does he fit? Well, I
3: don't actually, I've, as somebody who's used the word sociopath a lot, I don't know the difference between a sociopath and a psychopath, but here's what they have in common. Whether you're a psychopath or a sociopath, I'm not sure if those two words are distinct from one another, you lack a conscience. Underneath, deeply, deeply underneath, you do have a conscience, but it is so suppressed that the same things that would make another person shudder and feel guilty don't have that impact on you. And yes, there is no question that he fits the classic definition of a sociopath. If you Google sociopath, the very first entry, and you look at the eight or nine descriptive phrases for a sociopath, even someone who isn't appalled by Trump would objectively say, yeah, that's him.
0: I'm not a psychologist, so I don't really know the difference, but I do know that two common components of people that make them evil. And one is a lack of conscience and one is a lack of impulse control. Trump strikes me as someone with neither. And, you know, so if we can't agree on psycho versus socio, can we agree that he's evil? Yeah,
3: that's been very much on my mind. There's a guy named Scott Peck who wrote a famous book, millions of copies, sold, called The Road Less Traveled. But there's a second book that he wrote later, not as much attention, but I found very compelling when I read it long before I was thinking about Trump called People of the Lie. And it's the notion that there are certain people who are evil. Now, that could in fact be dramatically influenced by the childhood experience they had. And I have no doubt, knowing what I do about Trump's childhood, that it was a traumatizing childhood. He had a father who was brutal and he had a mother who was neglectful. And that's a relatively unrecoverable thing. And then probably... Trump was, in that early period, unusually sensitive. So it, its influence on him was even more. And then he had a brother who was brutalized, an older brother was brutalized by his father and eventually drank himself to death. Even long before that, I think Trump looked at his older brother and said, I'm not going to be like him because I'm going to get knocked down. So I do think that Trump is a person without, fundamentally without redeeming qualities. And I do think that one of the scariest things about Trump is his impact. What Jim Comey said about the way he gets into your soul and infects it is very much true. I think one of the scariest things about Donald Trump is his impact on other people. And I think he has brought down our collective humanity. Development for a human being is about seeing more. And We want to believe that people grow and evolve through their lives. They get better, they get bigger, they see more. But you can also have devolution. You can get worse. And all you need to think of to understand the the truth of that is about even yourself who are you at your best and who are you at your worst? And those are radically different selves. And most people are able to manage that worst self. This has to do with impulse control, reasonably well enough that they can show up and be decent human beings in the world. But Trump has appealed to the worst self. First of all, he comes from that self. That self, by the way, is the survival self. It's when we believe we're in danger, when we're threatened. It has a long evolutionary history. If you lived out on the savannah and you were an animal, you wanted to have a fight or flight response when danger actually appeared. But Trump lives in that space of danger and threat all the time, and he exploits it in other people. And that's what's so scary, is that he brings us down. So I want to believe, having just told you that Donald Trump is evil, I want to believe that virtually all human beings have the, have something internally good and, and, and have a, a possibility in them and can get better. Trump has managed to drop down or push literally millions of people, both people who support him, who live in his state of paranoia and and, and fear and hatred and anger.
0: Grievance and, and grievance.
3: Yeah. yeah. Um, and the people who who oppose him, like me. I don't want to live in hate. I don't want to feel angry. I don't want to give up on people. And it makes me smaller or feel smaller for doing it. But on the other hand, it's a very fine balance that you have to walk in the world in which we live in, which is, on the one hand, I feel compelled to speak out in the face of evil. On the other hand, I don't want to be owned by the emotions that arise in response to somebody like Trump. And to walk that line feels
0: painful and difficult and challenging every day. The Washington Post has documented over 10,000 lies, misleading statements, falsehoods. My guess is you're not surprised by any of this. Talk about how does he process this? How How is he so consistent in not telling the truth? Yeah,
3: those are almost two different questions. The first is what's his relationship with the truth? And we know what his relationship with the truth is, which is he will lie without thinking twice about it, it comes to him incredibly naturally, and he will lie in the service of what he thinks will serve him well in that moment. It often, by any rational standard, doesn't serve him well, oddly, but he's utterly unconstrained by facts. The second part of that question is, why does he lie so repeatedly and consistently, including in situations where you think it's completely unnecessary? And I almost think he's got an addiction to lying at this point. His first impulse is to invent something. So you do see with people who tend to lie that, and I i actually came up with the phrase for this truthful hyperbole, that tendency to exaggerate, that's the first thing you see, that tendency to exaggerate. So if it's if 10 is the true answer, you make it 15 or 20 or 25. And I think that's always what he does. And there, I think there's a psychological explanation, which is reality is not enough for him. What's actually going on in any given moment isn't enough to fill this vast black hole that he is. He always feels internally empty and desperate and hungry. And so he's always trying to raise the stakes you know, I remember that in the months after the book was published, he was, it was always his habit, because um, I, 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 you know, I was somebody he felt, I'm sorry to say, comfortable with, and he would call me in the evening, usually around 10 or 11, and he would say always the same thing at the beginning of the call, which is, can you believe it, Tony? Bigger than ever. Bigger than ever. And, you know, that was like blowing up a balloon, except the balloon was him. And he was always blowing on that balloon and it always had a hole in the bottom and the air was coming out nearly as fast as he could blow his inflated sense of who he was into it.
0: How surprised were you that he
3: won? Stunned. Stunned. This is publicly known. You know, I'd I'd engaged a fair amount with the Hillary Clinton campaign and trying to do something that I thought I'd done brilliantly at the time. And since then have realized wasn't brilliant at all, and that is to really equip or, or or share with the campaign the kinds of things that Hillary could say that would cause him to go off his rocker. And I was right, and he did. What I was wrong about is that the majority of the country would find that unacceptable. But as we came into, I had a, from the very moment he announced or at least soon after, an internal feeling of dread that this might happen. And I had a close friend, another journalist who I went back and forth with in dozens of emails that I still have about, hey, I I think this could really happen. I'm scared this could really happen. But I don't believe that I believed it could really happen. On the night of the election, I went down to the Hillary campaign headquarters and thought I was going to, you know, watch and celebrate the Election of the first female president. And I was there with my daughter, and it was a kind of a wonderful moment. And we walked in, and the, uh, we were probably got there a half hour before the returns started coming in. And then the returns started coming in, and Kentucky went Trump, and yeah. you know the red states started to go Trump. And I don't remember how many, but it wasn't many before I got this terrible feeling. And I, um, I said, and so did my daughter. And I said, look, we, we got to get out of here. We can't be here this, is, this isn't this just isn't good, and I got home, and my wife was in bed, and she was watching the returns, and now they were starting to get more scary, so let's say it was 10 o'clock, and I said, "Look, I, I can't deal with it. I'm going to take a sleeping pill, and I'm going to go sleep in one of the kids' rooms and I woke up the next morning, and I was certain about what had happened, and I could not get out of bed. I literally couldn't get out of bed, and I finally said, well i'm going to have to do it." and I walked down and I walked into the kitchen, and I looked at my wife, and she started crying. And I started crying. So, no, I didn't think it was going to happen.
2: Given, Tony, that you have chronicled and talked about his lack of impulse control, are you surprised that he has been able to avoid complete and total self-annihilation? There were were predictions when when he started, he wouldn't last six months, he wouldn't last a year. Does it surprise you that he's been able to hang on this long?
3: Yes. I mean, nothing goes away in the Internet world, so... I made many of those predictions. I, I thought he wouldn't last the first year. I thought that the Mueller report would clearly bring him down. At every juncture up until recently, I thought it's going to catch up with him. And either he's going to be impeached or he's going to make a deal to resign. Yes, I'm I'm astonished. You know, they always talked about Reagan as being Teflon. If Reagan was Teflon, what is Trump? I mean, this is a guy who's gotten away with literally scores of crimes over the course of his career, who's lied and lied and lied, and still not only is he president, but somewhere close to half the country supports him in being president. So yeah, how can you not be surprised? And that's what I mean when I say the evolutionary level of humanity as a whole has been pushed down by the fact that he has gotten away with what he has.
0: So, Tony, you, you know him probably as well as any of the people outside his family, maybe even better than some people in his family. If you were the prosecutor or if the prosecutor came to you or Nancy Pelosi came to you, whoever is the ultimate dealmaker to go into Trump and say, you need to go and here's what we'll give you. Is there anything that someone could take away from him that he would say, oh, I'll leave the presidency for that?
3: Yeah. So you're assuming that the person walking in has the cards to get Has them the out. card. Yes, yeah. absolutely. The only thing I can imagine is we're going to put Ivanka in jail. I do think he's fine about Jared going to jail. He's fine about Donald Jr. going to jail. He doesn't pay much attention to Eric. He doesn't probably have much of a relationship with Tiffany or with Baron. So, and he certainly clearly very separated from his wife. So it's possible that if Ivanka was going to go to jail, he might. And I honestly say he
0: might. So given that, is 2020 a referendum on America's character?
3: Yes. Without question. Without question. Best and worst. Do you have a vision of the world that is bigger than yourself? Do you think that there's something beyond your grievances and your self-absorption? Or do you not? Do you live in hatred and anger and frustration? And so, yes, I want to believe the world is a complex place, that everything bad that someone has ever said about me is true. I've come to believe, but it's not all that's true. But the problem is we're facing a very binary situation because if, in fact, he is evil and he has brought that out in other people, the only rational response is to want to see it eradicated.
0: Yeah. I want to finish this fascinating conversation with, tell us about the last conversation you had with Donald Trump.
3: It was the first night of the Republican convention. He was about to be anointed. And the New Yorker was about to come out with this article. The ghost writer tells all Jane Mayer's article about my experience with Trump. And so the fact checkers from the New Yorker had called Trump and asked him about certain things that were in the piece. And it had become clear to him that I had a lot of negative stuff to say about him. So I'm driving up the West Side Highway, and my phone rings. It's not a number that I recognize. And generally, I wouldn't answer it. But I'm thinking it might be a fact checker from The New Yorker worth hours from this piece closing. So I pick up the phone, and he says, hi, it's Donald. And I said, hi, Donald. And I'm fumbling to see if I can find on my phone, as a technical idiot, how to record this. But I couldn't find it, and I'm driving, and I might have slammed into a wall if I did. And he goes, so I heard, uh, I heard you're not going to vote for me, something like that. And I said, well, no, I'm not. And he said, well, you know, it's fine. You're, you, you, can, you can vote for whoever you want, but, you know, you, sh- you shouldn't have been saying the things you did to The New Yorker about me. You know, it's totally disloyal. And I said, Donald, you're running for president, and I disagree with almost everything you're saying. And I feel like it's something I had to do. And we went back and forth, and mostly it was him screaming at me. The second to last line was something like, you know, you're going to regret this. And the final line was, have a good life. And he slammed the phone down. Now, this is in the middle of the Republican
0: convention. It's a measure of who he is. Yeah, the moment he should have been relishing as finally reaching the respectability that he's been searching for his whole life. He took, you know, 10 minutes out to yell at you.
3: Well, and before those 10 minutes, Maggie Haberman from the New York Times told me later he had called her and railed to her about it. Here's a guy who's had almost every privilege you could imagine a human being could have other than love, who is as aggrieved as the person who has been treated the worst of any human on earth. He has in common with the people who support him the sense that he's a victim. That's who Donald Trump is. He believes he's a victim.
0: Tony, I've been watching you on TV in five and seven minute blocks. I've been dying to hear a broader story, and I'm glad you came here to tell us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.
1: All right, Joe, so what else is on your mind this week?
0: Well, abortion took center stage uh, this week with uh, legislation passed in Alabama. There's other things going on in Georgia and Missouri. But Katie, you're the lawyer here, so why don't you take the first crack at this?
1: Right. So these laws that were passed in these states, including my home state of Georgia, and particularly in Alabama that's an outright and nearly complete ban, basically seem to be constructed, and I think even many have admitted that are – The laws were constructed to ultimately get to the Supreme Court. So here's what happens next, and this is going to be a long journey to get to the Supreme Court. They have to go before a federal district court in the state of Alabama, one of three federal district courts, and then based on whatever decision comes out of the district court – Either side will appeal to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals that covers Georgia, Alabama, and Florida. And a three-judge panel will hear and decide that case. And then they can either petition to the Supreme Court for cert or they can request that the entire 11th Circuit rehear the case depending on uh, which way the decision went. But the question is what the Supreme Court is going to do and if they would be interested in taking the case. And for the Supreme Court to take a case – to grant a cert petition, they have to have four votes Four justices have to agree to take the case. And the question is whether there would be four justices that would be interested in taking that case in an election year or if the 11th Circuit decided to strike down the law, if they would be comfortable just leaving it. And I also saw some interesting commentary, and this starts to to wade in a little bit into your court, Joe, politics, but I started to see some commentary about uh, wondering whether or not the four liberal justices would actually vote to grant cert on the case to kind of force – the hand of the state legislatures and of the party in an election year. I don't know that that would necessarily be the case, and I don't know that that's how they would calculate the cert grant, but I thought it was an interesting question and starts to wade into the the political dynamic, uh, which is more your sphere.
0: Yeah, well, I, I can certainly see the logic uh, of the more liberal judges because this law was written extremely punitively. I think some more intelligent state legislators could write a law and probably are working on it now that would give this would give more cover for Chief Justice Roberts and the conservative wing of the court. So that will be interesting to watch. From a political point of view, let me make two points here. One is the, the lines are clearly drawn here, and both sides understand now that this isn't an issue that they can avoid or want to avoid. You know, I would refer people to you go on the Internet and look at Katie Hill's speech on the floor of the House when she talked about her abortion uh, when she was a teenager. Democrats are going to embrace this. Uh, Kirsten Gillibrand was in Georgia the day after the Alabama decision. They are not going to shy away from it. I think the people who are actually nervous— are the Republicans. Republicans uh, uh, that want to win the presidency, that need to do better in the suburbs, among women in the presidential campaign and in Senate races, this is poison for them. Uh, And while this may play well in Alabama, this doesn't play well uh, among uh, college-educated women, uh, and they're going to decide the next election. So I think Republicans uh, are nervous, and I think the way... Uh, the conservative pro-life movement has moved, has allowed the Democrats to shed their uh, caution around this issue, and I think we're going to hear uh, a whole lot about it. The second thing, and you know, this gets into the inane issues that I have dealt with over the last couple of decades, is about you know what's a legitimate question for the president, or what's a legitimate question to ask about personal life. And I think the side effect of this, of the Alabama law, is going to make a very hard question for Donald Trump now legitimate. And I think we're just waiting for the person who has the guts to ask it. Uh, If I was in the White House press corps, I'd ask it very simply, which is if the Alabama law, Mr. President, was retroactive to the 1980s, 1990s, and 2000s, would you have ever violated it by committing conspiracy to have someone have an abortion? No one has ever thought to ask a president that. But when you criminalize this the way the Alabama legislature has done uh, and you make the the extreme pro-life argument, it becomes very legitimate. Uh, we've seen a couple of state representatives that have had to resign because they were uh, big pro-life proponents, and it turned out that they had paid for abortions Um and I think that is going to become, for Republicans, a question they're going to have to ask. And you just couldn't think of this even two years ago, that this would be a legitimate question. But it's got a little bit of to do with the Trump effect. It's a different world. And um, there is, I think, a real sting in the tail for pro-life Republicans from what happened in Alabama this week.
1: Let me ask you this, Joe. Is this Episode and and the issue of abortion going to recalibrate or force Democrats to recalibrate how they approach judges. I saw some uh, some reporting this week actually digging back into stories from from 2016 and and around the time of the election, talking about uh, Obama's first chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel. Uh, made it clear internally that he didn't want to waste political capital on polarizing judges while trying to pass, you know, the stimulus bill, Obamacare, Wall Street rules. That this has never been the long-term goal of the Democrats, or at least their focus. Whereas Republicans have been playing the long game, particularly eyeing abortion for decades now. And with Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, along with the, you know, large number of judges that have gotten appointed to the federal bench in the last two years. They seem to be making more than incremental steps toward that goal. How is this politically going to change how Democrats approach appointing and confirming judges?
0: I think it'll fundamentally change it. I think Democrats will, going forward, understand that they get elected when women and young people vote for them. Uh, And when those people stay home, they lose. And I think you'll see a much more aggressive stance. You've already seen some presidential candidates who have said they'll apply a litmus test, uh, Roe v. Wade litmus test to, to all judges, not just Supreme Court judges. Democrats over the last, you know, since Roe v. Wade have had a bit of a split personality on this issue. They knew that uh, in their hearts they were a, a pro-choice party, but they also knew that an alienated part of their constituency, that's changed. Trump has sort of reshuffled the the, the coalition deck And Democrats probably didn't need to be shy about it 10 years ago. They won't be shy about it now.
1: Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think the safest bet is that this will take a while to percolate in the federal courts and get all the way up to the Supreme Court and that it's unlikely to get decided in an election year unless, of course, the four liberal justices decide to force the hand like we were discussing earlier. I think it's likely that a federal judge will grant a preliminary injunction to prevent the abortion law from taking effect. And as soon as that happens, that's when we begin the journey up through the district court to the circuit court and potentially beyond. So, Joe, on Friday, the Secretary of the Treasury, Steve Mnuchin, told the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee in response to requests for President Trump's tax returns, basically to pound sand.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is part of the overall strategy uh, from the White House. There was a remarkable letter uh, last week from the White House counsel, a 12-page letter, uh, that you could sum up in one sentence, which is, the White House believes Congress has no right to investigate the president. That is a startling claim. Congress has been investigating presidents since Congress began. And, you know, they do it under the guise of being able to better provide oversight and to provide better legislation. But they have been investigating presidents because without that arm to look at the president, the president has absolute power. And the Constitution is pretty clear on the absolute power issue. But I think it really reflects something else that's going on. You know, when you're right, when a secretary of the Treasury tells the House Ways and Means Committee to go pound sand, the guy who writes the tax law uh, in this country. And that's what I very loosely call the end of shame in politics. Uh, and, And that's a shame. And let me explain what I mean by that. Being able to shame someone in politics has always been an effective guardrail for outrageous Illegal, unethical, and politically stupid things. Some examples come to mind. If you look at presidential candidates, look at Gary Hart, who was caught, you know, having an affair after denying it. You know, John Edwards, and, and that. These were people who were told to leave the political arena because the press and other politicians could apply pressure. Even as recently as Al Franken, uh, with the sexual assault, he wasn't legally forced from uh, office. Shame was applied. Right Now, shame shame can go way too far. We had uh, Roy Cohn, uh, Donald Trump's mentor, and Joe McCarthy running hundreds, if not thousands, out of the political and uh, entertainment industry, falsely calling them communist sympathizers. We had Thomas Eagleton, who had to leave George McGovern's ticket in 1972 because he was under psychiatric care. So it can go too far, but it has a very powerful and I think positive impact uh, in politics and it, it's serving as that guardrail for the norms. You know, it reminds me of the old Gordon Gecko speech. Where he talked about uh, greed is good, greed works. Well, in politics, shame is good shame, because shame works. This didn't start with Donald Trump. I would start with Newt Gingrich and the Republican revolution, weaponizing um, congressional power. Uh, I'd, I'd go to the Supreme Court with Bush v. Gore where uh, the nine top jurists in the country decided to vote on their party affiliation, not on the Constitution. And I'd I'd go to Mitch McConnell denying Merrick Garland a chance to be on the Supreme Court 18 months before uh, Election Day. It's a very simple concept that you can't shame the shameless. And Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump and a lot of politicians now, and listen, let me be bipartisan here. Look at what's going on in Virginia. Uh, there, you've got right. three statewide elected officials who should be in the lobbying business right now. We're back at their law firms or at, back at their medical practices. But uh, because of a lot of factors, the media not being as powerful because it's so fractured, what Donald Trump's been able to do, uh, we, we just don't have those guardrails anymore. And, you know, it is a shame.
1: It seems like each generation, at least, we recalibrate what the bar of, of shame is and for exiting politics or exiting whatever it is, not getting an opportunity that you're um, asked to do. I'm, I'm reminded of Judge Douglas Ginsburg getting nominated to the Supreme Court and then uh, – via shame and a lot of public reporting, uh, losing that opportunity or stepping away from that opportunity um, because he had smoked pot in college. I think we have since recalibrated that. But to your point, it seems like we're just getting rid of it entirely and and not just approaching it from a more modern perspective.
0: Well, it's exactly right. It's like saying because one or two innocent people get convicted of crimes, we don't have laws
1: anymore. Right. Uh,
0: there are no laws. You can do whatever you want. It's the Wild West taken out of context, saying shame works would probably work well with the Catholic nuns who taught me, but with no one else in my life. But I really do think there's a point here that the guardrails are down and it's really ugly to watch right now.
1: All right, Joe. So while I was away last week, you started doing a daily shadow briefing, which I have enjoyed watching on Twitter. And tell us a little bit about uh, about what that is.
0: It's something like 66, 67, 68, 69, 70 days since uh, Sarah Sanders has done a briefing. You know, it just hit me that uh, in politics, if you don't fill the void, someone else will fill it for you. And almost as a lark on a Saturday evening, I decided, well, if she won't brief, I'll brief. And so I've kind of gotten into the habit sort of midday Uh, almost every day. You know, some days things get in the way, like kids' concerts and stuff like that. But just taking questions from people on Twitter, taking questions from the room. I can let our listeners in on a little secret. When I talk about Sophie from Horse and Hounds, that's my dog. She's a black lab. (laughs) She's not actually asking me the question. That's great. I am trying to poke fun at Sarah Sanders here for not doing her job. But I'm also trying to make a point that the, at least surfacing the questions is important, uh, and I answer them uh, at times satirically, at times seriously, but certainly I answer them in a way that make, should make the White House uncomfortable as a very pointed way of saying you ought to get it back into that briefing room. There was, there was a picture that, was, that went viral this week of the actual podium in the White House that had gathered dust. Right. That made me sad.
1: Yeah, I think it's a great idea, and I know that a lot of people have been engaged and will continue to be. I look forward to the day that you get White House press questions.
0: I will tell you that I heard from a, a prominent journalist who didn't want to do it on Twitter that uh, they thought it served a valuable function because there were questions that weren't getting asked, that because I don't really care about access to the White House or what anyone there thinks of me, I'm asking Um uh, so I, I, I actually, in addition to having some fun with it, I, I do hope that it does raise some of these issues.
1: Absolutely. I think that's what it's done for me, too, is 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 see the questions. Because we have grown used to having a daily briefing and now no longer do um, and haven't for a while, it's easy to lose sight of the day-to-day questions that would usually get put to and and force an answer from the White House. And when those get covered over, we, we lose sight of what those questions are. And you're bringing them up daily for people that are even po- plugged in on a regular basis. I think it's helpful for us to see, you know, the daily repetition of constant And important questions on news of the day and not just the major headlines and where they're trying to drive the story. So I enjoy it. And I know others do, too. There are a couple of questions that went unanswered last week. One of them I wanted to bring up uh, and chat with you a little bit about. This one's from Dean. Dean. He said, does the president agree with Senator Cotton's comment on Margaret Hoover on firing line that the Iranian government is a revolutionary theological regime and, quote, hijacked the powers of a nation state?
0: I think to the extent that the president thinks about Iran, and if uh, John Bolton said that to him, he'd say, yeah, that's what I think. Uh, I don't think he thinks about Iran that much. Um, I suggested in uh, the one of the shadow briefings we did last week that he kind of um, outsources uh, complicated issues. Uh, Iran's a complicated issue, and if he's not going to read the briefing or sit through a meeting, uh, it's very difficult for him to have a full understanding. The way he looks at these things is, well, Obama did the Iran nuclear deal along with Europe, so it must be bad. So let's get rid of it, with no thought of what you do in its place. And I think we saw the negative uh, impact of no policy process at the White House uh, this week in a couple of ways. One was we we started seeing the drums of war being beat, you know, very loudly, and according to the Wall Street Journal. It was all based on a misunderstanding that both sides thought the other side was gearing up for a conflict. The president seemed absent uh, in this, and it seemed to be John Bolton's war. This is a little telling thing. You know, you've heard Tony Schwartz talk about the sociopathy of uh, Donald Trump. Donald Trump wasn't worried that he might have to send hundreds of thousands of troops to put their lives online for the country. Donald Trump was worried that John Bolton was getting more press than him and that it looked like John Bolton was telling him what to do, which tells you a little bit about his mental pathos. The second is the the China tariff story, uh, which there's there's absolutely no one in the Republican Party uh, who's an elected official who agrees with what he's doing. None of them have the courage to raise it, though, publicly. And the president really doesn't have a plan. He runs around talking about how this is good for the economy and it's making... Billions of dollars for the Treasury when everyone knows that that's not true. Uh, and he just keeps saying it. Some part of America believes it. But when it comes to complicated issues of the Middle East, the president really doesn't have a clue. And that can lead to the kind of, quote-unquote, misunderstanding that takes this country to war. And, if, you know, if, if Tony Schwartz for the last 45 minutes didn't scare you, what I said, what I just said should.
1: Joe, thanks for letting us know what's on your mind this week. We will be back next week. Welcome back. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Words Matter. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.